Hello and welcome to the second season of the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying, produced by the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and nationally funded by Palliative Care Australia as part of the National Action Plan Project. My name is Lena Keneva. I'm a journalist and facilitator of this series. This is the second season of a further six episodes which will continue to focus on the experience of families whose children have died from a life-limiting condition. Family members bravely share the joys and sorrows of their experience with the hope that their voices can support, inform and better prepare other families who may need to face similar challenges. This is episode one, Life After Loss, One Year On. In this podcast, we will speak to parents who share their family's grief experience following the death of their child only one year ago. They will discuss the challenges they've faced, the way family life and relationships may have changed, the way they continue to honour and remember their child, and how they've lived with their grief and loss over the past 12 months. Today, I'd like to introduce Simone and Rudy, who were the parents of four-year-old Otis, and Silas. Silas was diagnosed in 2020 at 18 months of age with an aggressive brain tumour and sadly died just over 12 months later in October 2021 at the age of three years. Welcome to you both to the podcast today. Perhaps start with you, Rudy. Tell me about Silas. How would you describe him? Silas is, um, I would say, the perfect amalgamation of Simone and I. Um, he absolutely loved life. He loved to be the one who was always out and about. Um, if it's climbing on couches or tables or um, harassing his brother, um, he was the one who always, who always wanted to be, like I say, out and about. But at the same time, he had this this ability to just just cave you in in a sense. Um, he gives gave the best cuddles, um, and he was. I always got the the foot end um, when he slept in our bed. Um, Simone got all the the best cuddles, but I didn't mind because yeah, once again um, he always came to me. He would always tap me on my shoulder, and I'd have to pick him up and pop him in the bed. So yeah, he's um, yeah he's a child that that. Um, like we've mentioned, has passed on, but he's still very much with us. Simone, how would you describe Silas? I have two children. Otis, I would describe as he's the fire in our world, and Silas was the cool to the storm. Silas was quite a gregarious little boy, full of life, and he always gave everything a go the way he wanted to. Um, he was quite steadfast when he set his mind to something and this is what he was going to do. Um, and that came out into play in hospital <laughs> and sort of in the outside world that he knew what he wanted out of his little life. Um, and sort of his, I think, his spirit and just him being himself. I think a lot of people drew to that because he was only two years old, yet he was so powerful in the way he lived his life as a little being that, you know, for me, that was, that is what made him who he is. 
when did you know something was wrong? Silas became unwell probably around June, July 2020 when we noticed some changes in Silas. He had a sort of initial sort of presentation to hospital and he was admitted um, at that time. And at that time, they couldn't really figure out what was happening to him in that space. They put it down to tonsillitis. And I think if we go back July 2020, it was really the peak of COVID restrictions um, in Melbourne. And it was really difficult for doctors maybe to assess at that time um, that we really didn't get a sort of a clear picture of what was happening. When Silas was discharged following like three days, um, we saw sort of a quite a steady decline in his functioning. And probably only sort of mid-August, I knew that there was more to it than met the eye because he just wasn't himself and his sort of mobility was deteriorating and his speech was deteriorating, which for me was a clear sign that things were happening. That was, yeah, more than what we anticipated at the time. And so how did they describe the diagnosis to you? What was said when you finally were told? So I I was present I, and Rudy wasn't there. So I took him into hospital on the 26th of August. And at 11.30 that evening, I was advised that Silas had a massive brain lesion that took probably 70% of his right hemisphere and that he would need to be booked in into ICU immediately um, as his condition was deteriorating. And on the 27th of August, he went straight into emergency surgery, which lasted about 14 hours. And it was really difficult sort of for us because it's our world changed from day tonight, literally in a space of less than 24 hours, Silas was sedated and he probably stayed sedated for a few days after that. Um, the Saturday after the surgery, we were informed that Silas had suffered a stroke during its surgery and he had lost quite a lot of blood um, and that it was remarkable that he managed to survive that surgery. They were able um, to resect part of the tumour, but they couldn't really say. At that point, the brain surgeon um, told us that he kind of had an idea what it was and, you know, what the growth was. And he suspects that it is cancerous just by looking at it. But it probably took about a week later when we formally got a diagnosis as to what it was. And I think... From that moment, for us, we knew that, I guess, our time was limited with Silas and that, you know, things will change, that his life will change. Can you describe what it was like for your family finding this out? I think when when Silas went in that afternoon, we had, we had already seen, just prior to that, we had already seen quite a lot of changes like Simone had described, but also he just started to withdraw from who he was as a person. So um, instead of being the kid running around at um, kinder, climbing on the jungle gyms and things like that, he just wanted to sit on a mat. Um, he just wanted to sleep. Um, one of the staff members who we've become great friends with, she really sat and spent a lot of time with him just to make sure that he was, he was um, you know, just feeling part of, of everything. And then she came to us and she said to Simone, 
this just isn't Silas. And that just confirmed more for Simone as well. And then, um, yeah, he just, when we had to tell the family, I remember we, we stepped into my folks' place and um, my mom could already see. She just, she could just see the aura around us that something wasn't right. And I think both her and my dad just kind of stood in silence first that they had a kind of, honestly, a look of disbelief, like we were lying to them. And it's not we were lying, it's just more that no. they just couldn't believe it. Um, you know, you would think that, okay, maybe it's a really bad infection or maybe something that, that um, you know, a couple of, maybe a week or two in the hospital could kind of, you know, tidy up and he'd be back on his feet. But to get a diagnosis like that, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it, it, um, I think they also needed time to kind of just absorb it and we needed to give them that time as well so and you've been in australia for 10 years mm. do you have a wider family here or are you a close group of people i've been here for i think 15 16 years now i came over with my folks and my younger brother simone's been um here for about 10 years now um her parents are still um in south africa and so is um her brother and with covid as well um it really made things horrendous in a sense because we couldn't have them here yes they were on the phone with us every day and they were a part of this journey every much and they really supported us but there's still that value in sharing a cup of tea with somebody you know maybe having a cuddle maybe going off into a quiet room and just hugging someone you know um and that i always felt for someone i always felt i had that and um and even though my, my folks have been there for as well it's just it's different when it's your own parents and having to tell them i guess over the phone during covid I think it was an initial shock, I think, for everyone. I think having to process that information so far away, it's really difficult. I think for anyone, regardless if they're sort of grandparents or not, I think people can't fathom when children are diagnosed with cancer or when children are diagnosed with a terminal illness. I think people's whole world gets quite a shock in terms of that because the reality is that, you know, for Silas and for us is that we knew that our child would die at some point. It was just we didn't expect it to happen in such a small (laughs) proximity to the diagnosis. Um, And I think for my parents especially, like I've experienced a lot of people die with cancer in my life and for them to have lost a grandchild to cancer or having to find out that their grandchild was diagnosed with cancer was a real sort of big shock to them. And it took a while for them to process because a lot of frustration from then because COVID restricted that natural response to just book a flight and come over. So that sort of natural way of connecting with people just to be present was missed completely and you can never sort of go back to that sort of to that phase because life evolves and for us our life moved quite quickly being at home and then you were into a hospital setting so that missing that journey or witnessing what what had happened is quite sort of um difficult and I think it was difficult for them I think it was equally difficult for them when they got a chance to come over this year um, six months post Silas this that they actually walked into an empty space so having to process what had happened for the last two years and then entering an empty space when the last time they entered they were with Silas for his 
first birthday. So for them, there was a lot of, I guess, questions in terms of like, what did I miss or reflection upon um, the fact that, you know, life has evolved and it has moved on. But yet, because they weren't present, maybe for them, they were sort of halted in their process of processing what had happened because they weren't fully part of the journey. Um, And I think for a lot of our friends and family during that sort of initial period when the COVID restrictions were quite intense or restrictive, shall we say, it really, um, for them too, they struggled with that. It wasn't as easy as to just come into hospital, you know, take turns or give us a break when they would naturally want to do that. Um, and we, yeah, I think we struggled. It was also, um, um, we also noticed that for the wider family as well, some people, you know, and just with all honesty and Simone and I, we always try mm-hmm. to be honest with each other and with everyone that we come into contact with about this journey as well. And um, what we did notice was that some of our family members just they 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 just couldn't couldn't talk about it, you know. And at face value, you would you can easily think, why aren't you talking to me? Why aren't you reaching out to me? Do you know what we're going through? You know, we don't really have a wider support network here. But you know, it that's for us again. We kind of just had to sit ourselves down and go realize that they, they haven't met this child yet. You know, we were supposed to go over to South Africa the end of 2020. So there was a lot of people who hadn't met him yet. Um, and then on top of that, you know, it's it's a child. You know, no one wants to hear anyone, let alone a child, go through this. So a lot of family members just, you know, they weren't, oh, I don't want to set a bar as into how, you know, how much you're <laughs> supposed to talk and how much you're supposed to be there for family members. But, um, you know, we understood and we never forced it on them. And everybody spoke in their own time. And we, we appreciated that. Were you able to talk to anyone in particular? Did you find somebody who became that good listener while this was happening outside of the family or was it someone in pal care? How did you, how did you cope then? For me, it was Simone, to be honest with you. Um, yes, I have, like I said, my family there. Um, my best friend's back in South Africa as well. Um, he's also, also over there as well, but time differences and things like that. But I... It was good having Simone there. It was good having to be able to speak to her and to, for, her, for us to be a team. But, you know, I always enter conversations with her with a bit of trepidation because she's going through it as well. You know, now it's also kind of not fair for me to unpack on her. So I did try to reach out family and friends and stuff, but I found that Simone was the best person for me to speak with, for me to bounce things off and for her to kind of say, Rudy, you might be feeling like this now, but just give it some time. Give it some time for you to understand that the situation that you're probably in now, you need a little bit more time to process it. You need a little bit of time to think clearly, to be able to see things from different points of view and stuff. And she's just really helped me with that. So, yeah. I would say the same. I think for us, like being open and honest with us, how we felt day by day was probably the, you know, for us a blessing because we sort of learned a lot about each other and how to draw on each other in that space. I think there were people that did come also out of, I wouldn't say some people came out of the woodworks, but I think people that we didn't expect to be there were there and they listened. And some of them did ask the hard questions that maybe other people weren't brave to ask in that moment. And it's during those sort of discussions, you know, or just having a cup of coffee 
checking in that you know we were able to share what is really happening the rawness of it because it is quite raw and it is confronting um for people to witness and for people to see and i think just being the people that we are we never put anything on someone we never force people to be part of the journey if they didn't want to be part of it but the people that stuck to us and that were willing to go on the journey for us they were a crux and they continue to be to be there but there's also this, sorry to cut you short but there's also this people that um in our family that haven't seen so we obviously when Silas came out of that first em- emergency s- in surgery mm-hmm. you know the only way that we could really communicate was via text messages mm-hmm. and phone calls and stuff like that um we did take photos you know just to show that he was okay but we never sent it out to any family groups and stuff like that and there's family members that still haven't seen it and we don't hold any grudge or anything against it because like someone said people have to go through this in their own time they can be very happy not seeing that side of Silas and that's okay it doesn't mean that they love him less it doesn't mean that they um you know want to shoe box that corner of his life and just leave it there if that's how they deal with it then 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 so be it but um what we appreciate the most mm. is still being able to have that conversation mm. with them about it exactly what are you able to tell the journey now of the last part of his life how did how did it unfold for you i think um silas was diagnosed for the second time with multiple brain and spinal tumors probably a week to the anniversary of his initial of his initial yeah. diagnosis um i was in prison at the time but rudy was present at that point we just went in and did a routine mri sort of the quarterly mri that silas would do and um i think it was a shock for his medical team and for all of us that this was something that no one anticipated it was pretty hard because when we we did the the mri um the results we normally review straight after um when i stayed to review the results and i remember the medical team had a look at the at the the, the monitor and they scrolled and they looked and they looked and then they said oh don't worry we have to go downstairs we want to have a better look at the on the bigger screens and things and it yeah it just your your heart starts to sink at that moment it's like okay you you don't want to think the worst but at the same time it's like look i i have no medical degrees no medical expertise so don't let your mind run away with you rudy um but then they came back and they sat us down and what what Simone and i the kind of relationship that we wanted to foster with the medical team was that look for the type of people we are we handle things better if you just give it to us straight um i know for other families it's 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 not appropriate and for other families that they um you know might have a different approach to that but we just feel that we we cope with things better if we know okay fine this is in our control this is outside of our control this is something we can possibly work on um so we had that that um um that report so they told us um they got someone in on a call um and then they told us say that um you know this is inoperable um this is palliative and yeah you can at that moment you can kind of hear the earth split in two you know mm. because even though um you know this day is coming because of his underlying condition um you 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 still hold in your heart and in your in your mind and in your all being that is going to be some day far in the future you know um and then yeah like i say it was it was earth shattering mm. 
What's the timing of this? Silas passed away, I think, seven weeks from that date of his diagnosis, his second diagnosis. And I think from the time that we got the diagnosis, we made a pretty, you know, clear decision that for the next however long we had, that we were going to continue to give him the life that he wanted and that we would walk the journey with him and we would follow his lead in terms of what he needed and for that I think for us um, it was sort of you know I I think when you've hit with a few blows along the journey when you get to that stage you sort of realize that medicine can't solve a lot of things and the rapport that you have with medical teams it's important to let the medical team know that it's okay because as much as you want this to be cured or you want this to be taken away for life not to happen in this way that this is out of everyone's control and that to a certain extent we can only do our best to support we could have only done our best and the medical team have done an amazing job to get us through those last sort of few weeks and that yeah. that's all we ever wanted was to him to go out in style and just to sort of just be who he is yeah and not to put too much expectations on ourselves and on the medical team that life will run its course the way it's meant to for Silas I think he was at peace I think like he was at peace for a long time and I think Silas probably knew that he would he was going to die before we even got the diagnosis and that this is part of life. If you accept it as a an event in one's life, as a journey, then you sort of accept what's going to come with it. Yeah. What questions did you want to ask the doctors as you got closer to the end? What what, what were the things that worried you? I don't think there was much that worried us, um, not, not to jump too far ahead, but the the last 48 hours Silas had was was pretty rough um he he wasn't the medication that he was on to help keep him we, we faced a, a very hard decision um we could either take him off the painkillers and take him off the medication and he could be he could be conscious he could be with mm-hmm. us but obviously in a lot of pain a lot of discomfort and obviously what the way that we know our he's brain would work um, a, a lot of frustration because he wouldn't have the mobility that he um, that he always wanted mm-hmm. um, just like me he loves cars and he, he just loved sitting in the car and pretending to drive so when they kind of explained this to us we decided look as much as we want him here as much as we want to talk to him mm-hmm. hold hands he was really starting to talk at that, at that stage mm-hmm. as well so you know it was nice to be able to actually start to have a conversation with him mm-hmm. um but we ultimately decided that no, he, it, he, it's, it's, it's really that would have been for our benefit mm. and would have come at, at a cost for him. So, kept the medication on, he kept under, and then for the last close to two weeks, I'd say he was pretty much just under. Um, and in that last forty-eight hours, he, um, his body was just, it, I think it was starting its process, um, and yeah, it got to a point. Mm. The Monday before um, he passed away, Tuesday. Monday night, um, Simone and I laid next to him and we kind of said, you know, mate, um, 
as much as we love you, as much as we want you here, it's time to go. You know, we can't, it's, it's kind of being selfish of us to ask you to, to stay here. And that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do because, you know, I don't want him to go, but I just, I cannot see him like that. And um, I think that that really helped Simone and I kind of start the journey of healing, but at the same time also to kind of be there for everyone else as well, because Silas is not just part of, he's, he's not just us, he is my mom, my dad, Simone's mom, Simone's dad, our, our, our brothers, our wider family, he is part of all of us. And we wanted to be there for them as well, as much as what for, mm. for each other. So that Monday night is, is it's a it's a moment in my life that I think both of us will in our life, sorry, we will we will never ever forget. Yeah. Do you wanna reflect on that last forty eight hours? Yeah, I think it was it was a it's a tough one because Silas sort of did a <laughs> left turn and I a think a couple of left turns. A couple of left turns. <laughs> and I think, you know, for me it was I don't think I had any questions for sort of the doctors, you know, in that space. Um I think we had already sort of said our goodbyes and I think once you get once you get to that stage where you're willing to accept that and that accept that your child has left you and that everything that's left is essentially physiological, you know, it's his body here on earth, um, that it helps to process things a bit quicker in those moments. But I think it is scary. It is a scary feeling because you don't know at what moment he would take his last breath. And you, you're anticipating that it's going to come, but you just don't know when it's going to happen. Um, and no one can give you that answer either, which it's a, it's a difficult experience to go through. Um, but if I look back at it, I probably wouldn't have wanted it any other way because that is part of the journey and that's sort of part of the life. And yeah, it was crap the last two days. You hear stories of, you know, children will go away silently or they will go away calmly in their own time. Um, and for us, it wasn't calm at all. Um, it was quite a struggle. Um, and when you witness your child going through that, at some point, I asked myself, um, have I done everything I could? And the sort of reality of that is that I did do everything. And I think we both and everybody that was involved in Silas' life up until those 48 hours, even his medical team, I think everybody did everything they could to support him to get to cross that line. And there's no doubt or any question in my mind that we didn't do enough because I think everyone has done enough in that space. What things did you find um, helpful or comforting along the way? Were there things that, that helped you? For Silas, I think um, being able to see that that he's still living his life. Um, I mean, we got the diagnosis, um, the second diagnosis, August the 20th, I think it was. Um, the next day, we sent him back to kinder, you know, and, um, you know, you can easily look on back and go, was that the right choice? But... Look, for us, we wanted to keep him under our arm every second mm. of every day, you know. But um, he, being two years old, 
he would have like what's going on here I know something is up but like mm-hmm. why are you doing this and he enjoyed being at school some of the best photos we have of him was when he was at, at kinder as well so mm-hmm. um, that was his escape that was his opportunity to live his life you know so um, we just felt that we didn't want to take that away from him he's, he's got a lot that's going to be taken away from him moving further but this is something that's in our control this is something that we can you know help give to him so we were like you know bag on your back and off you go <laughs> um, yeah and, and I think that helped we, we draw a lot of strength from hearing and seeing the photos and hearing from his, his, his class teachers mm-hmm. about how how well he's doing and how he's um, coping and stuff like that and just seeing him play mm-hmm. seeing him play with his brother seeing him do the things that he wants to do I think that was a near limitless well of energy that mm-hmm. Simone and I just drew from because by that time we were pretty tapped out I think <laughs> So, um, yeah, we, we, we found a lot of strength in him. How did you explain this to Otis? Did he ask you why is he sick? What's happening to him? Mm. I think at that point, I think Otis could see that Silas was changing. And I think Silas' deterioration, especially when he was in that palliative sort of care phase, um, he was deteriorating. Otis never asked yeah, come to think of, he never asked what was wrong with him or what was sort of going, what was happening to him. I think if I look back when Silas was initially diagnosed, we were open and honest with Otis and we said, you know, in as concrete as possible for a three-year-old at that time to explain that Silas will be in and out of hospital, doctors are helping we're trying to work out what is happening with his brain and what's what's growing um, and why it's a bit bumpy. And we try to make it as concrete for him at that time. But I think Otis just took on board what he needed to take on board. And I think um, that's all sort of we ever wanted is that as much as you try to shield your children from being exposed to really traumatic events that there is also a beauty in allowing them to walk the journey and with Otis we needed to allow him to walk the journey as being the big brother being there for Silas and walking that and if the questions or the difficult questions did arise that we would try our best to answer in the moment for him Um, because I think we don't always have the answers, and yeah. that's okay. We, yeah, we, we just kind of we like Simone said in the beginning. Um, we, we said exactly that. You know, the doctors are um, trying to help Silas. Um, the term we used was that there were some bumps on his um, on his head that they were mm. that they were um, looking to um, to help him with. When we got the second diagnosis, we said uh, we started setting the scene in that um, you know sometimes doctors can help and sometimes doctors can't. And that's okay. You know, everybody's trying their best. When you play with Silas, that's you trying your best, you know. So, um, you know, just keep that in mind. You know, everybody everybody is mm. trying their best. And um, I think we, we never we never really preemptively kind of delved really deep into the conversation mm. of that, look, you know, this day is coming because we thought it was just a bit too much. Mm. Um, and I think also, like, Otis also has his own medical condition, and Otis was diagnosed when he was 18 months. And for us, having two children involved sort of medical space and for 
their journey, their life's journey. It was really important for us to really think about how we support both Otis and Silas in processing their journey. And for Otis, he still has a long road to go. His diagnosis might not be terminal. However, his experience of medical support and um, getting to know a hospital system or even people coming into his life where he didn't have a choice in that matter. Um, for us, it was really important to support him. Yeah, And if he had questions, to help him ask the doctors himself if he could. Yeah, And I think the medical teams were open to that. Because I knew Otis was quite an inquisitive little boy to allow him just to step into that space and yeah. ask those we, questions. We didn't want to take a, take away that that sense of agency, that that he's also starting to to nurture himself as well. Um, if he feels like he wants to ask a question, then you know we, we do um, in, encourage that. Um, and with regards to you know his medical journey and how he's forging forward with that as well, that will continue to be a strong point for us. But we also don't want to. We're trying to limit transfer of the medical journey that we've gone through with Silas onto Otis. Mm. You know, we need to keep in mind that he's a separate, he deserves its own lens of clarity as well. Simone, you said earlier that, you know, medical science can't solve everything. Mm. Has this experience changed your view of the world? Probably. (laughs) I think so. I think I'm quite raw, yeah. I've become quite assertive in... um, my expectations of what, you know, um, answers I should receive as a parent of a child going through a medical journey. I think sometimes as parents within sort of the medical realm, uh, you are cushioned to an extent, but that cushioning also doesn't allow you to maybe grow um, and allow you to sort of self-advocate. Yeah, if you just walk along the system and accept uh, a response the way it's given. And I think for myself, I've been quite, I've become quite braver um, in asking those difficult questions and asking for an honest response. Even though I might not like the response that comes back, I know that for me, um, that will support me in how I move forward. Yeah, as opposed to just take, taking no answer and sort of taking a step back. And I think that's really sort of important. I think how I see the world now, I think everybody has a journey, yeah? And there's no degree of how, <laughs> degree of sort of comparison. It's about walking the journey and being present in the moment because you don't know when that moment might be gone or whether you will think back as to whether you actually must missed a moment that you were maybe not aware of. Um, so, yeah, to maybe be a bit kinder to oneself <laughs> yeah, um, and to allow allow people just to be who they are. And I think I've sort of just reflect back, just like we're all human. And this event is a life event, so we need to treat it as one. People don't want to talk about death or they don't want to talk about a child dying, but... I think for parents that have gone through it, we need to talk about it. And it's important to talk about it when we least expect it because that is something that, you know, helps everything to move forward. Um, And it's an important, it's an important life event that needs to be acknowledged. And for me, it's about acknowledging 
that, you know, we need to talk about it more. Definitely. And I think just off the back of that as well, for me, um, the biggest thing that this has kind of highlighted to me is there was there was a lot of points that I've, I've told someone this many times before. The expression I always use is like, um, there's a lot of points where I just want to get under the blankets and just pull the blankets over my head and just lay there. If it's for an hour, a day, a week, a month, I just want to lay there. But the biggest thing that this has taught me is that I should never ask the question, why us or why me? Even though it's so tempting, it is just so tempting. I just feel that that for us personally, because the way that we we interact with the world, I feel that for us personally, it's like us giving our sense of agency away. We're just by kind of living through that that mantra and using that moving forward, we were able um, to realize that there's still choices for us here. There's choices for us to enjoy the time with Silas for when the day is good, when he's in a good mood and things like that. Let's go out for a drive. You know, let, um, let's spend that, that family time together. Um, what does he like to do? Let's, let's focus on that. What does Otis like to do? Let's, let's get mm-hmm. everybody involved. Um, and that's something that we still have control over. And in a moment, in this whole moment, you that sense of control gets taken away from you. Um, you have to give it over at times as well to the medical team because all you want to do is you want to read up on everything. You want to know everything so that you can be a part of that conversation. But at times like that, you need to give it up to um, um, to the medical team and it's hard to do. So in situations like this, when your knee-jerk reaction is to control and is to grab and is to hold and is to have, um, I think for me, a big thing was the learning just to let go. Let go where it needs to let go and focus on what you can do. And what I could do was when Silas would come to me and he would say, keys, 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 that means that he wants to go and sit and, and pretend that he's driving in the car. Then that's what we do, you know. Um, he will he will ask for which car he wants to sit in. I'll give him the keys and the two of us will trot along. We'll sit in the car, you'll sit in the driver's seat and I'll sit in the passenger seat and you will broom, 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 broom for a couple of, you know, for like a half hour or 45 minutes. And then we would pretend that we're on, on a journey and that was the greatest joy for him. So that's something that I could give him. That's something that we could share in, you know, even with Simone as well. It wasn't strictly a dad and, and, and Silas thing. There would be times when he would come to Simone and he would say, keys, 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 and Simone, all right, fine, let's go and sit in the car. And then he would, boom, 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 you know, for hours on end. So um, just just realizing that even though we have to give so much and so much is taken away, there's still an opportunity for us to have some control, to give some joy, to give some life and some love, you know, to this person who... You know, it's not always going to be there. So um, that for me, that was the, mm. the biggest change in my worldview. And looking towards the grief, how did you approach a funeral at the end? Or was it something you'd been thinking of for a while? What I think, happened? I think we were planning, or well, I was planning before you even passed away. And I think it was important for us for Silas to go out in style. When the the day Silas funeral was the day when they opened um, funerals up to twenty people <laughs> in a space, so and that be... sounds unusual, doesn't it? <laughs> and I think we had to be quite wise in terms of like how we chose, and you know, it was difficult, you know, in that space. But I think for us, like it was important to honor Silas and the fact that he lived a full life at two and a half. Some people might ask us, like, how can you say you like you lived a full life? But I, if I look at Silas' experiences and the things that he got to do and the bravado that he 
had that he was going to do <laughs> what he said he was going to do um i think he um provided us with opportunities to um live a full life with him while he was here and for any parent that's enough it's enough and part of his funeral was honoring that and sending him on his way yeah in difficult times of covid as you say yeah how would you describe and this is a hard one your first year of grief is it better worse now how would you describe that journey because this is i think not only is the journey to lose your child it's how you can keep going after losing your child it's um well at the risk of sounding cliche it's obviously not easy um you walk through your house and there's a thousand and one things that reminds you of him um i think when we had to clean up his room small things so when we had to clean up his room um i was putting it off for what we could do and so one jokingly but not jokingly said you know we also have to you know kind of cuz then some of folk, folks was coming over and we were going to turn it into a a room for them um you know she jokingly and not jokingly said you know we got kind of have to clean up the room um he's he took off his spare shoes um we started he slept in our bed this is off the second diagnosis and then one of us would sleep with Otis and then um the last day that he took off his shoes he well, we I put it on his um on our dressing counter and it's still standing over there so it's it's something that like um you kind of being 100% honest you make it hard on yourself and you also through other reminders it gets made hard on you as well now there's times where a thought will just come into my mind or a memory will come into my mind i try not to run away from it if it means that i have to take a few minutes sit cry and just feel all of those emotions that's part of him you know the good ones the bad ones we had this thing where in the mornings someone would make him his breakfast and I'd come into the kitchen and I would um I think was and then he would look at me and he would and that was our thing and then when he woke up out of the surgery I and he, he looked at me and he said no and that 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 really that just that shook me and then when we spoke to the um team about it they said look um the part of the brain that was affected there could be behavioral changes and i really struggled with that but besides being silas he decided no 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 i'm still going to be who i am and a couple of weeks later he was going with me again so um but look again make your question um but it's 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 odd um we we try not to um run away from those feelings there's moments where it just catches us by surprise or oh, this was at a birthday party at a mate's birthday party and I stood there and I'm like Silas is not going to add this and I had to walk away you know it was in a public place I had to go sit down and kind of suck up my tears you know because um it was it just hits you out of out of nowhere um but moving forward I think we just embrace those moments we always check in with each other um and we just make sure that you know that we okay it's it's, mm. it's yeah I think that's the best way that I can say mm. it And I think it's about accepting that the grief is always going to be there. It's not going to stop and to allow yourself to <laughs> go through the process. And there are moments where I know like where I'm not coping or emotions are quite overwhelming and allow myself just to go through that and not stop myself because it's part of the journey. 
essentially. Um, I think it's been a really sort of interesting year because part of what we've done, we've sort of thrusted ourselves like back into work and we've been doing like different things and part of it is keeping busy because for the last three years our lives have been busy all the time and that also helps one to process your grief in a way or I would say potmentalize it to some extent so that you can still live but I think the reality is that um, there is an aftermath there is an aftermath of like experiences and I think for families who go through it the processing of trauma only begins when your child passes away and I don't think the trauma of losing your child passes away but the fact that you maybe didn't have time to process certain information or at the time when your your child was diagnosed or at the time when you are coming into hospital or going through um, your treatments I think there's no time to process trauma in that space and that you only really sort of realize what the trauma is when you're out of that space and when you have that breathing space for yourself and I think especially if I look at Otis we are only now seeing sort of the impact of that trauma on him that is a journey that we have to walk we have to support him um and that for me, it's not really part of grief and loss. That is something else that's come part, part and maybe it's not, we didn't expect that too, but it's also equally important to be mindful that it's going to be hard and it's probably going to be hard for a very long time, but you can choose what hard it looks like. Yeah, you can choose how you respond and what you take from it. And I think, yeah, if we look back on the way Silas lived his life, it was hard for him, but he did what he needed to do. And for us, we'll get through what we need We need to in time. And we need to allow ourselves that. And I think um, part of that is almost be, being unapologetically yourself <laughs> in these yeah. things. We've just, I don't want to say we've come out of our, our journey with Silas because that will that's something that will mm. always be there. But that initial part of, you know, him being physically a part of our life, we've just come out of that now. That was obviously very emotionally and physically draining for mm. us. Um, now we have to switch over to, you know, realizing that there's still somebody else. There's still Otis who also needs our support as well. So we need to switch switch gears for that. Um, and with um, Simone saying that, you know, you need to be unapologetically yourself. That is very true. We do try our best you know, if we're having days where I'll just tell someone, you know what, I, I just, I, I need to spend today just in the bed with Otis. Um, he, he's really into where's Wally at the moment. So um, we'll just sit and we'll just find Wally. You know, we'll do activities like that. Um, we'll make time for ourselves. Um, I have um, go-karting there that, that I really like that I've picked up with my brother. That's something that we do on the side as well. So there's moments where you need to say, you know what, I don't care what people think, but I need this for me because at the end of the day, I need to, the, the the point of view that we have is that we need to make sure we're okay so that we can be there for each other. Then we can be there for Otis. Then we can be there for the wider for the wider family and for the wider community as well in, in opportunities like this, you know, in being able to, um, to speak about it. Um, so it's, it's very important that we do that. We also have family members, family friends that have gone through something similar, um, and they've also been a great, uh, a great, you know, um, resource to kind of just sit down and 
have a chat with, you know. Um, they, unfortunately, they didn't have a medical diagnosis. Their son was just suddenly taken from them. Um, but they as well, you know, they, yeah, they to a certain extent know exactly what we were, mm. or what we're going through. So it's it's good to know that there's that there's people out there that that um, that are always willing to help. You know, um, obviously we hope that no one has to go through this, but if anyone does, that you know, we would like to be part of those people that can help as well. Mm. What are some of the ways of honouring his life? What are you planning? And as you come up to the anniversary, what what's what things do you do anyway that honour his life? Eat watermelon. <laughs> Eat watermelon. You now, love watermelon. You'll have to explain that one. Uh, yeah. I think like Silas was obsessed with watermelon and that was probably the only food he ate throughout. And chicken nuggets. <laughs> and chicken nuggets. Yes, yeah. Watermelon, chicken nuggets and chocolate milk was the go-to throughout chemo and throughout the whole process. And that's sort of like... Whenever we think eat watermelon, that's Silas. Whenever we make yeah. chicken nuggets, <laughs> that's Silas. And I think, I think every day we speak about Silas. There's not one time, you know, we don't mm. mention his name or think about him or do things um, with him in our minds. But I think um, it's important to talk about your child. I think there was a part of me maybe that initially didn't speak about it too much with a fear that others would be concerned as why are you talking about like your son is and he's not there but I soon got over that because he's part of my world and that's how you live to honor someone you talk about them as though they are present with you and I think we do that every day um and we include Otis in that. And Otis will randomly talk about Silas too or say, can we do can we do this for Silas or can we do that and, and follow what he, what he feels he wants to do for his brother because he's still a big brother. That hasn't left him and that hasn't left his responsibilities. So if he feels he wants to do something, allow him to do it. So we haven't had a lot of planning for the... We do have the... Um the get together, the remembrance. Yeah. We do have a like a date to remember. We've we've invited like close family and friends who have sort of been along with us on the journey, and that would just be sort of a barbecue, just to get everyone in one space and one time, and we can all eat watermelon and drink chocolate milk, and be together. And I think that's important to keep those connections with people. I can only say. Thank you so much for being so brave today and for sharing so much of your experience and for allowing us to hear about your journey with your son, Silas. And I know this will help many, many people. I hope that life is as you plan it from now on. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the second season of the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love, and loss, caring for a child who is dying. The Royal Children's Hospital, together with the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and Palliative Care Australia, would like to thank the parents who've generously taken part in this series. You can search all the episodes online at rch.org.au slash podcasts. I'm Lena Keneva. Thanks for listening.